Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Israel-Hamas tensions escalate on day five of the conflict. World leaders weigh in and civilians express despair. More Americans confirmed dead in Israel. What we are learning about Americans kidnapped by Hamas and what the White House says about sending troops in to get them back. Harvard students now changing course after blaming Israel for the Hamas attack. That's after CEOs wanted a list of names to blacklist them from hiring. How is the Israel-Hamas war affecting the 2024 presidential race in the U.S.? A foreign affairs expert tells us why he thinks one candidate in particular is best prepared. And is the House of Representatives any closer to electing a speaker? Republicans nominated leader Steve Scalise with a simple majority vote, but uncertainty lingers. We have the latest on the battle for the gavel. Another tense day in the ongoing Middle East conflict between Israel and the Hamas terrorist group. A warning the following footage may be disturbing for some viewers. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest. Day five of the war between Israel and the Hamas terrorist group, and there are no signs of things slowing down. On Wednesday, residents in Gaza were seen carrying children to nearby ambulances following an apparent airstrike. And amidst the chaos, this father tried to comfort his daughter. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. The death toll has soared on both sides, with Israel's military reporting over 1,200 fatalities. Most of these deaths occurred in a surprise attack at a music festival, where Hamas terrorists killed hundreds of people, sparking the war. On the other hand, over 1,050 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli retaliatory airstrikes, according to Palestinian officials. Israeli volunteers prepared wreaths for the funerals. The least least we can do is uh, do something like this. The Israeli military released a video on Wednesday saying it shows airstrikes on Hamas targets in Gaza from land, air and sea. A spokesperson for the Israeli Defense Forces said Hamas uses civilians as shields. What I want to tell you is that no. That isn't a civilian building. It is a legitimate military target. And why is that? Because Hamas uses all, locates all of their offices, headquarters, their research and development, and all of their other military assets. If it's above ground, they locate themselves in civilian buildings. Adding to the complexity, Israel now faces attacks from its northern bordering territories, including both Lebanon and Syria. Israeli forces responded with artillery fire to both countries, according to a statement released by the IDF via the Jerusalem Post. However, on Wednesday, the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for the U.S. said there were no other participants in the war. I have not seen any indications of uh, additional players that uh, are going to get involved to the detriment of Israel. Uh, and this is one of the reasons we uh, addressed our force posture. It's not only in support of Israel, but it's also to deter future action. The King of Jordan and the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia have both expressed support for Palestine. But it seems that residents in Gaza don't feel the support. No one feels what we feel. No countries do. Not any Arab president nor the Saudi president. They are all liars. Those who say they stand with Gaza are liars. We do not blame the Jews. We place the blame on the corrupt Arab regimes. 
Meanwhile, a shipment of ammunition from the U.S. arrived in Israel on Wednesday, according to the Israeli Ministry of Defense. This comes after President Biden on Tuesday pledged support for Israel and issued a warning to anyone who may try to take advantage of the situation. Jason Perry, NTD News. And inside Israel, political unity amid the war with Hamas. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and opposition party leader Benny Gaines today agreed to form an emergency government. It will exist until the end of the war. The two sides also agreed to form a war cabinet comprising Netanyahu, Gaines, who is a former defense minister, and incumbent defense minister Yoav Gallant. They will not promote any unrelated policy or laws during the fighting with Hamas in Gaza. Multiple groups are threatening to attack American military bases. That's if the U.S. gets involved in the fighting in Israel. This comes as an American aircraft carrier arrives in the region. The head of Kataib Hezbollah said the group would direct qualitative strikes at the American enemy in its bases and disrupt its interests if it intervenes in this battle. The threats came just hours after an American warship arrived in the eastern Mediterranean. Kataib Hezbollah is an Iranian-backed militia founded in 2003. It's not the same as the Hezbollah, which was founded decades earlier. The head of the Ba'er organization made similar threats to America this week. He said, if they intervene, we would intervene. We will consider all American targets legitimate. The Ba'er organization is a political and military group from Iraq. It is also aligned with Iran. And the White House is now warning that more Americans might have been killed or kidnapped by Hamas. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent, Iris Tao. Good evening, Iris. What is President Biden saying and what are we doing to get American hostages back home? Good evening to you, Tiff. President Biden in a speech this afternoon confirmed that among those killed in Israel, there were at least 22 Americans. That's up from 14 that was just announced yesterday. In addition, there are now 17 Americans at least missing in Israel. And the White House says there are a handful among them who are believed to have been taken hostage by Hamas. President Biden in his speech again condemned Hamas and said that he has not given up hope about bringing these Americans back home. Let's take a look. And I would argue it's the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust. The deadliest day since the Holocaust. We're working on every aspect of the hostage crisis in Israel. Folks, there's a lot we're doing. A lot we're doing. I have not given up hope on bringing these folks home. The White House also warned us today that both the number of Americans killed in Israel as well as the number of Americans being kidnapped by Hamas are likely to rise. And what's worse, the White House says it actually has no idea what condition these American hostages are in or where exactly they are, which makes rescue efforts very, very difficult, it says. And today, as the U.S. and Israel are still trying to gather more information about these hostages, the administration does seem open when asked today if they're concerned considering sending in U.S. troops to help rescue these American hostages. Here's what they said. Watch. The president has said we'll do everything we can anywhere around the world to make sure that Americans held hostage uh, have a path home. We're also keeping the options wide open right now as we get more information. 
And in addition to working with Israel to try to rescue hostages, the U.S. has also sent Israel air defense capabilities and weapons. It's also deployed a U.S. carrier strike group to the eastern Mediterranean to try to deter countries in that region from attempting to widen this war. And notably in the speech this afternoon, President Biden called out Iran, saying that he has made clear to the Iranians that they should be, quote, careful. Back to you. Iris, thank you for that update. Harvard student groups are now withdrawing signatures from a statement on Israel. That's after it sparked strong backlash. Several business leaders wanted to blacklist the students so they wouldn't be hired by top Wall Street firms. After billionaire Bill Ackman asked for the names to be released, multiple student organizations withdrew their signatures. The letter called Israel an apartheid regime. It blamed Israel for the Hamas terrorist attacks and called Gaza an open-air prison. 33 Harvard student organizations initially co-signed the letter. Now, at least five groups reportedly withdrew their signatures. How could the Israel-Hamas war impact the current presidential race in the U.S.? A foreign affairs expert and former presidential campaign advisor shares his thoughts on the foreign policy positions of current candidates. Bart Marcois, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Tiffany. Always a pleasure. As the world is watching what's unfolding in Israel following the brutal surprise attack by Hamas over the weekend, how is this going to impact the political climate in the U.S., especially as we head into this 2024 election cycle? I think it's a boomerang because this started in the U.S. in many ways. The, the, the policies of Barack Obama during his administration and now during the the Biden administration, they have favored Iran over and over and over every time they had a chance. Iran has sold over $80 billion of oil in the during the Biden administration, more than three times what they sold in all four years of the Trump administration. And the $6 billion that they paid as ransom for the hostages last month was not even a very good tip on the $80 billion. And all that money has been spent arming Hamas, arming the, the terrorists in Gaza. And, and people are starting to put two and two together. They're looking at the nearly billion dollars in foreign aid that Biden has restored to the Palestinians after Trump cut it off because the Palestinians refused to make peace. He said, no, no aid. You, you don't recognize Israel, you don't make peace, there's no aid. And Biden restored it. Now, I think that we're going to see, heaven forbid, we're going to see some uh, attacks, maybe sabotage on industrial sites, maybe actual attacks against people here in the United States. Our border has been open for three years. I think we have a lot of Iranian sleeper agents in the United States, and I think that they're going to be activated when Israel continues trying to take out Hamas and responding to attacks from Hezbollah, both of which are Iranian puppets. And Bart, to your point, this administration is still trying to work on the Iran nuclear deal. The U.S. so far is vowing to stand with Israel. But on Capitol Hill, some Democrats are already saying among their party there is fracturing support for Israel. As we head into this next election, which candidate is most prepared for this? Presidential candidate? 
Yes. Oh, oh, undoubtedly Donald Trump. This plays right into his sweet spot. He was the one who moved the embassy to Jerusalem when everybody told him that it would provoke riots. It didn't. He was the one who, who cut off the Palestinians when everybody told him it would provoke war. It didn't. It, it led to peace. It led to the Abraham Accords, and uh, which are the rapprochement between the Sunni Arab states, especially the Gulf states, and Israel. And over a million Israelis visited uh, the UAE last year. That's an incredible connection and an incredible boost to the, uh, to the Emirati economy. Iran saw this, and the Palestinians saw this, and they said, we have to stop that normalization process. We must blow up the Abraham Accords. That's why they provoked this attack now. And all of this lets Trump say, as he has been saying, see, I was right. When I was in, we didn't have wars breaking out all over the world. And when I come back in, we again won't have them. And Bart, some headlines and reports are noting Nikki Haley's foreign policy background. She is one of the presidential candidates. How do you expect the presidential candidates to leverage perhaps their background in the upcoming GOP debate? Oh, you know what? I don't think the upcoming GOP debate is going to have anybody watching it except the mothers of the uh, candidates in it. The, uh, the <laughs> I think you and I were the only ones watching the last uh, debate. Um, they, it, it doesn't matter what they say in that debate. They, uh, there are several that will have good things to say. Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, uh, Ramaswamy, all three will have very good things to say. Tim Scott is uh, the very good friend of Israel. I'm looking for him to sponsor a, um, uh, some kind of uh, legislation soon that will help Israel. And he's very smart on, on Israel affairs. So I think it will help him a great deal. And Bart, zooming out, some experts are noting the U.S. is still sending money and aid to Ukraine. Israel is now in need of ammunition, saying that this could embolden Beijing to potentially invade Taiwan. If that were to happen, how is the U.S. likely to respond? You know, the funny thing is, uh, in terms of priority for Americans and in, uh, in, uh, for their foreign partners, it's Israel, Taiwan, and Ukraine didn't even figure in it until a couple of years ago. If people are forced to choose between Israel and Ukraine, they'll choose Israel. If they're forced to choose between Taiwan and Ukraine, they choose Taiwan. And I think the, the gut reaction of Americans would be... I don't care what the cost is. We have to defend both Israel and Taiwan. These are both people like us. They are people that love liberty, that, that just want to be happy at home and make a living, and, and that create things using their own brains and their own expertise. Communist China steals everybody else's ideas and makes them cheaply. But, but the U.S., Israel, and Taiwan create that design, and there's a kinship there. And, you know, all it takes is a single carrier group to defend Taiwan. Bart Marquois, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you.
Are Republicans finally unified behind a new speaker? Skepticism in the air after an internal vote, but lawmakers did choose a nominee. NTD's Melina Weiskup joins us live from Capitol Hill. Melina, Republicans had their private vote today with a majority voting for Steve Scalise. What are you hearing about a vote on the House floor to make it official? Well, as of right now, Tiff, that vote on the House floor is still up in the air. We heard from lawmakers who were leaving that internal vote earlier this afternoon. They said they planned to go to the floor for that public House vote by 3 p.m. At 3 p.m., they came to the floor and instead gaveled into a recess, and they're still in that recess right now, so it's unclear exactly when that House floor vote is going to take place. But like you mentioned, Steve Scalise was elected as the nominee, but he was only elected by a very slim margin, 113 votes to 9 votes for Jim Jordan, which is a super slim margin, and that just goes to show how divided the conference still is at this point. Congressman Thomas Massey, for example, said that he believes there's at least 20 Republicans who are still opposed to Scalise even after the majority of Republicans chose him earlier. Um, and the 20 is a lot of uh, members, especially in a conference that's so thinly divided with Republicans having the upper hand by only a couple of votes, 20 Republicans could completely tank Scalise's chances to take the gavel unless he's able to change some minds, which is exactly what he's working on right now. We'll show you how Scalise uh, responded just moments after he was chosen by the conference to be the nominee. First, I want to thank my House Republican colleagues for just designating me as the speaker. Obviously, we still have work to do. We're going to have to go upstairs on the House floor and resolve this and then get the House opened again. And it's important to note that Scalise was only chosen after the Republican conference voted against a rule change that would have raised the threshold that Republicans would have needed to move this vote from behind closed doors to the full floor for that public vote. They wanted to raise it to around 217, which would ensure that they had all the Republicans needed to pass this on the floor. However, they rejected that. So now they're headed to the House floor without that assurance there, which could mean we could see multiple rounds of voting yet again. And that's something that I did ask lawmakers leaving that meeting. How do they feel heading into this vote? And they weren't able to give me much assurance. Take a look at what they told me. Do you think it will happen efficiently or can we expect to see what we saw in January with 15 or more votes? That I don't know. I don't know. It wasn't unanimous. We did one round. Steve Scalise has the majority. Well, I, you know, I don't predict what's going to happen on this in this Congress, but my hope, of course, is that we can get this done and get on with the people's business. Yeah, I don't know that it'll go in round one, but I do not expect it to go multiple rounds of those who are supporting Jordan. The majority, vast majority, are willing to come uh, uh, over and rally behind the designees. Steve Scalise got 113 votes. That is a majority. But how are you going to convince the other hundred and something of a sudden just say, well, now we're all going to vote for Steve Scalise? Now, as for Jim Jordan, we are seeing reports that he may nominate Scalise on the floor when they do have that public vote, just as a way to try to get the people who were originally supporting him to see he's backing Scalise now, so maybe they should join him. But as for that floor vote, Tiff, we are still waiting to see that when that's going to happen. Again, the House is in recess right now, and they could come back either tonight, tomorrow, or this could drag on for the rest of the week or longer. Tiff, back to you. Melina, thank you for that update.
Afghanistan hit with a second major earthquake within days. A 6.3 magnitude earthquake should park up western Afghanistan this morning. An earlier quake of the same magnitude hit on Saturday and killed more than 2,000 people. The epicenter of Saturday's quake was about 25 miles northwest of Herat, the capital of Herat province. Several aftershocks have also been strong. The latest quake today was about 17 miles outside the city and 6 miles deep. It triggered a landslide that blocked a main highway. The Taliban said today's earthquake killed at least one person and injured around 120 others. Today's quake also flattened all 700 homes in a village in the region, which was untouched by the tremors of previous days. Nearly 2,000 houses in 20 villages were destroyed. Coming up, a South Carolina racial gerrymandering case could impact the 2024 congressional elections. How is it different from a case in Alabama? And a group of House Republicans are looking to expel their fellow Congressman George Santos, who's currently facing a litany of fraud charges. Find out more after the break. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments today on another race-based congressional redistricting case, this time in South Carolina. Both cases involve a congressional map drawn by a Republican-led Senate legislature. And both cases argue that the maps were drawn based on race. That's where the similarities end. We turn now to our legal correspondent Arlene Richards to sort out the differences. Arlene, thanks so much for joining us. To begin, what are the prominent differences in these two cases? Well, Tiffany, the cases are similar in that they argue state lawmakers diluted the power of black voters when the congressional voting maps were redrawn. The biggest difference here is the law that was used. Now, the Alabama case relied on the Voting Rights Act, which directly focuses on civil rights and discrimination. The South Carolina case relies on the Equal Protection Clause, which is not directly focused on race. And Arlene, what are the arguments in each case? Well, Tiffany, in the Alabama case, plaintiffs argued that there should have been two majority black districts instead of just one because the black population had grown to 27%. Now, in the South Carolina case, they argue that 62% of the black voters were moved out of District 1 and into District 6. Now, District 1 is held by Republican Representative Nancy Mace, while District 6 is held by black Democrat James Clyburn. And now the court ruled in favor of the plaintiffs in the Alabama case. How is it looking for the plaintiffs in South Carolina? Well, it's not so clear in this case. I mean, for one reason, the plaintiffs didn't provide an alternative map to show the justices a better way it could have been drawn. Now, in the Alabama case, the plaintiffs submitted several alternative maps. And the other problem is that plaintiffs didn't have any direct evidence of racial discrimination under the 14th Amendment in the South Carolina case. We likely won't know the final decision until the end of the court's term, which is in June 2024. And Arlene, there seems to be a trend of these types of cases coming up in recent months. How could the Supreme Court's decisions affect the congressional primaries in 2024? Well, that's a good question, Tiffany. And as a matter of fact, the lower court in the South Carolina case said the state legislature had created a stronger Republican tilt in the district. Now, this is important to Representative Mace in the upcoming election. 
She won by a very narrow 1% margin in 2020. And after the map was redrawn, she won re-election by 14% in 2022. And as you know, Republicans hold a very slim majority in the House. If the Supreme Court orders the state to redraw the map, Democrats could have a shot at picking up the seat in 2024. Tiffany? Arlene, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tiffany. A group of House Republicans want to expel fellow GOP Congressman George Santos from the chamber. This comes a day after he was indicted for campaign finance fraud. Two House members said today a group of New York State Republicans in the House will introduce a motion to expel fellow New York Republican Congressman George Santos. New York Congressman Nick LaLota said he has no business being in the halls of the House of Representatives. He's an immoral person. He's an untrustworthy person. He scammed hundreds of thousands of voters. On Tuesday, federal prosecutors filed 23 fresh criminal counts against Santos. They accused him of inflating his campaign's fundraising numbers and charging campaign donors credit cards without their consent. A motion to expel would require support from two-thirds of members in the House, meaning 290 votes. Democrats have repeatedly called for Santos to be expelled, and over a dozen Republicans have done the same. Carrie Lake of Arizona formally announcing her 2024 Senate run. Lake, who lost an Arizona gubernatorial bid, is a Trump ally and has already received an endorsement from the former president. I am not going to retreat. I'm going to stand on top of this hill with every single one of you. And I know you're by my side as I formally announce my candidacy for the United States Senate. I will stop the push toward communism, and I will be the most pro-America senator in the entire country. Carrie is one of the toughest fighters in our movement, and I am proud to give her my complete and total endorsement for the United States Senate. She is very special. With people like Carrie fighting for Arizona in the Senate, with me in the White House, we will make America great again. So God bless you. God bless Arizona. And Gary, God bless you. If Flake wins the Republican nod, it could become a three-way battle between current independent Senator Kristen Sinema and Democrat Ruben Gallego. Lake will vie for the nomination against a handful of Republican hopefuls, including Pinal County Sheriff Mark Lamb and businessman Brian Wright. Coming up, significant testimony against the founder of failed crypto platform FTX. Does it mean that cryptocurrency will soon face more regulation? Hamas is powered by cryptocurrency. The terrorist group can't raise funds legally, but tens of millions of dollars in crypto has been slipping under the radar. And false claims on the Israel-Hamas war are spreading as misleading information and doctored images are surfacing online. NTD Business's Don Ma tells us more after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. 
Israel reported over 1,200 deaths and Gaza reported around 1,000 deaths in the ongoing war as Hamas uses civilians as shields. The White House said at least 22 Americans have been killed in the Hamas attacks. House Republicans picked Majority Leader Steve Scalise as the nominee for House Speaker, not Congressman Jim Jordan. The full House will be voting on the Speaker soon. A group of House Republicans from New York plan to introduce a motion to expel their fellow Republican Congressman George Santos. He faces 23 criminal counts related to campaign financial fraud. The Supreme Court will be ruling on South Carolina's newly drawn congressional map. A lower court has ruled that the map used unconstitutional racial gerrymandering. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried is on trial. What was in the witness testimony against him today? And have his political donations come up at all? To find out, we spoke with Epic Times reporter Kevin Stockland. Kevin Stockland, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Tiffany, thanks for having me on. The disgraced FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried's trial is ongoing. Today we had the former Alameda CEO Carolyn Ellison testifying. Give us a sense of what her testimony included. How damning was it? Um, it it's going to be um, pretty challenging for the defense. Um, she is essentially testifying that uh, she's admitted that she's committed securities fraud, and she's saying that she did so at the direction of Sam Bankman-Fried, who is ultimately the owner of Alameda Research. And right now, the headlines are dominated by the war happening in Israel following the brutal surprise attack by Hamas over the weekend. How significant is this trial? Why should people pay attention to it? Uh, you know, compared to that, I, I think this trial is is uh, is fairly trivial. Um, you know, it, a lot of what's being discussed currently is is a little bit uh, soap opera-ish. Um, however, there are some big issues that people should keep in mind all the same. Uh, the one is that um, this was Sam Bankman-Fried was the largest donor to um, President Biden's election campaign. He was the second largest donor to the Democratic Party in the midterms. And this includes a lot of people who would be regulating and passing laws to regulate the crypto industry. Um, and secondly, um, it has to do with the crypto industry at large, why people are choosing to invest here. Um, so these issues do make this important, although, you know, compared to the tragic events in the Middle East, I, I think it's fairly trivial. I want to zoom in on the political donations in this trial so far. Has that come up? It hasn't. Um, it has not at all. This has all been about the issue of the case that they're trying to press for securities fraud. However, uh, there will likely be a follow-on case. Charges are pending uh, for his political donations and the fact that uh, they may have been illegal or illicit. So there, there hopefully uh, should be some follow-on trial and then we'll have a little bit closer examination of who received money from Sam Bankman-Fried uh, and how they are tied into the crypto industry. And on that note, what is the significance of his political donations? Well, uh, some of his largest donations went to people uh, on Senate and House committees who actually have recently introduced legislation to regulate the crypto industry. Um, he's also reported to have had a private meeting uh, with Gary Gensler, who runs the Securities Exchange Commission. As I, and as I mentioned, he is the largest donor to the Biden election campaign. So he was buying a lot of influence 
um, with some key people who are in charge of regulating the crypto market. And that those sums add up to more than $100 million in total. That's a lot of money we're talking about. And Kevin, you also mentioned the crypto sector more broadly. It seems one of the big appeals of the crypto market was its separation from the government. Given this trial right now, how likely are we to see more government regulation in this sector going forward? Absolutely. And so this is a huge background issue to all of this. Um, you know, a lot of people invest in crypto just, you know, to get rich and, you know, for speculation. But for a lot of people, this is a way to escape the government. It's a way to escape inflation uh, so they can have some investment that holds its value in a time of five to, to you know, nine percent inflation that we've had over the last couple of years. But it's also a way to escape government surveillance of transactions, which is increasing through banks. So this uh, trial, even though this is kind of a classic case of, of fraud, according to the allegations, it looks more like Bernie Madoff than anything to do with crypto. Um, this is going to be used as a justification for the government to extend its authority and its control over the crypto market. The government is very unhappy with transactions that go on outside of its control. And in terms of this trial, what is next? Where is this going? Well, so we, last week we had uh, testimony uh, from Gary Wong, who basically talked about the infrastructure that was set up fraud to occur at FTX. This week has been uh, Caroline Ellison, who was given the perspective from Alameda Research and the uh, misuse of funds and the taking of funds from FTX for FTX uh, for Alameda Trading, some of which she said was actually lent out to Sam Bankman-Fried and other executives directly and used for political donations. So we'll certainly be hearing more about that. And then I expect we'll have more executives uh, who have been granted um, not immunity, but um, uh, an easier ride in the, in the sentencing process. Uh, I think we'll be hearing more testimony from them. Kevin Stockland, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Hamas is powered by cryptocurrency. It's hard for the group to raise funds legally since it's a terrorist organization, but crypto has the ability to slide under the radar. NTD's Jack Bradley has more. Hamas's attack against Israeli civilians may have been funded through cryptocurrency. Hamas received around $41 million in crypto over the past few years, according to Israeli analytics firm BitOK. Another terrorist group, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, joined Hamas on Saturday's attack. It received $93 million in crypto. The U.S. has officially designated both groups as terrorist organizations, making it hard for them to get money. They're largely cut off from the banking system, and anyone who does business with them can be sanctioned. But through crypto, they can still fund their operations. Hamas first reportedly started fundraising with crypto back in 2019. It solicited crypto donations through the Telegram app before shifting the fundraising to the Hamas website. It's easier to, to send money uh, via crypto than going through a bank. Uh, but on another end, um, once a wallet is identified as being tied to a ter terrorist organization like Hamas, it's easier to then freeze um, that money and, and to track every single transaction. Crypto expert James Katulis says this is happening right now. Israeli police said they found and froze some crypto accounts on Tuesday. Israel has been seizing Hamas's many crypto wallets over the past few years, collecting tens of millions of dollars. It's not known whether cryptocurrency was directly used to fund Saturday's attack. The U.S. says Iran gives Hamas most of its funding, around $100 million a year. Experts say crypto is just a another funding route. 
Jack Bradley, NTD News. The EU's industry chief is alleging that disinformation about the Israel-Hamas conflict is being spread on Elon Musk's ask social media platform. We spoke with NTD Business's Don Ma for more. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, as always, great to be here, Tiffany. To begin, what is this EU official accusing X of? Right, uh, so, so in the letter addressed to Elon Musk, uh, the Commissioner for the Internal Market of the European Union said that uh, instances of fake and manipulated images and facts were reported uh, on the social media platform. And at the same time, he, he's urging Musk to correct the situation and even talked about potential fines. So, you know, of course, Musk responded uh, to this letter on X saying, quote, uh, please list the violations you allude to on X so that the public can see them. Uh, and then the, the EU official responded to that, basically saying that, you know, Musk is aware of the violations and he, he did not provide a list. So, you know, basically what the situation looks here right now, there's a lot of back and forth. Uh, the EU accusing Musk's ex of something, Musk asking for proof, and then the EU official uh, saying you already know what you did wrong. So, you know, a lot of back and forth right now in this situation. And Don, it sounds like these accusations of disinformation when it comes to the Israel-Hamas war on X are quite serious. How are the users reacting to this? Well, it looks like uh, a lot a lot of users are taking Musk's side on this, saying that, you know, the official proposed action against X. So, you know, they should be clear on what they're talking about. And, you know, I think X users may have a point here because, you know, if someone's accusing you of something, it's up to them to prove that you committed wrongdoing because, you know, we're innocent until proven guilty, right? I, and I think a lot of groups have been more critical of Musk ever since he bought Twitter. Um, but, you know, do I think there's disinformation uh, uh, about the conflict on X? Well, probably. Um, but, you know, there's disinformation about the conflict on many other social media platforms as well, you know, like Telegram, uh, WhatsApp, Facebook, TikTok. But it seems like media is mainly focused on X uh, compared to other platforms. And what is X doing about this potential disinformation on its social media platform? Yeah, so X said it's uh, removed newly created accounts affiliated with the Hamas terrorist group and took actions on tens of thousands of posts that shared graphic media, violent speech, and hateful conduct. Um, but X didn't say what actions it took on the posts. But I think it could be things like, you know, removal or having uh, their distribution reduced. Um, and one false claim that actually is spread on X and Facebook um, is something that showed a U.S. government document edited to lo look like approval for $8 billion in military funds to Israel. And besides that, there's, there's other uh, misinformation as well, uh, including falsely labeled video purporting to be Hamas militants with a kidnapped child, and as well as video from a concert by American singer uh, Bruno Mars, miscaptioned as footage from an Israeli music festival that was attacked by Hamas. Uh, so there, there's, uh, there's a lot of things circulating on, on the social media platform, but it's not just X. Wow, well, Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Tiffany. 
The European regulator sent a similar letter to Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg today. He gave Zuckerberg 24 hours to respond with measures to counter the spread of disinformation on Meta's platforms. He also warned that failing to remove the content in question could put the company in violation of new EU moderation regulations. Coming up, a former Olympic champion fights for her life, the daughter of Mary Lou Retton, with an update on her mom's condition. More California school districts are adopting new parental notification policies. They say the goal is to strengthen relationships between staff, parents and students. And tipflation, it's not just you. There are more requests for tips lately. Some self-checkout machines are even asking for a tip. We hear from consumers after the break. Welcome back. The world of gymnastics was shocked by the news yesterday that former Olympic champion Mary Lou Retton is in the intensive care unit with a rare form of pneumonia. The announcement was made by her daughter, McKenna Kelly, who added that the 55-year-old has been in the ICU for more than a week and isn't able to breathe on her own. Kelly posted a video this afternoon thanking fans for their support. My sisters and I are overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed. We didn't even realize that there are so many people out there that love her just as much as we do. And um, it's been a really hard time for her family. As far as an update goes, uh, she's still fighting. Um, it's going to be a day-by-day process. And we hope that um, you guys will respect her boundaries as we want to keep the details between her and our family right now. Retton rose to fame with her dramatic win in the 1984 Olympics. The all-around gold medal performance was the first ever by an American gymnast. More California school districts are adopting a new policy that broadens parental notification. NTD's Christina Corona has more on the latest district to vote in favor of the change. The Placentia Yorba Linda Unified School District voted to adopt a parental notification policy Tuesday, which primarily addresses mental health concerns. This policy involves school counselors alerting a student's family when there is a reasonable belief that the student's actions pose a danger to their own and others' well-being. With reports of depression and anxiety and suicide rates at an all-time high among public school students, action is needed to address this emerging crisis and support the health and welfare of district students. This also covers situations where a student seeks to transition genders, requests different pronouns, or experiences distress due to a mismatch between their gender expression and identity. And when asked if the policy would require teachers to inform parents if a student identifies as LGBTQ+. Right. If there's a if there's a safety related issue in that disclosure, depending on the scenario as a student talks about it, then they have an obligation to notify the parent. And but if there if it does not present a clear and imminent danger to the student, then that information shared with the counselor is confidential by law. Trustees Carrie Buck and Marilyn Anderson raised concerns about the policy's unclear language, especially regarding transgender students. They requested a second reading in November, but it was denied. I, I don't believe this is a gender notification policy. No. 
this is a parental notification policy and the spirit of it is when kids are in crisis, parents need to know that crisis. So this covers bullying, it covers mental health, depression, anxiety, suicide ideation, you know, the extremes, but this is not addressing one particular issue. The board voted three to two to approve the policy. Christina Corona, NTD News, Orange County. Customers say they are experiencing emotional blackmailing when they check out. They're citing a new phenomenon dubbed as tipflation. NTD's Stephanie Sakal tells us why. Many of us have heard it would only ask you a couple of questions after a purchase and immediately feel pressured into tipping or guilty if not, even after the purchase was just a bottle of water at a store. Why is tipping becoming such a problem in America? The U.S. is often known for its tipping culture, but historians believe the practice likely originates from Europe. During the Middle Ages, upper-class people would tip their servants for good service. Historians say in the 1800s, Americans who traveled to Europe then brought the practice back to the States. Today, many businesses ask for tips even when there's no service being provided, like a self-checkout kiosk. Some people say it's leading to tip fatigue and affecting workers who depend on tips. Digital tipping prompts raise concerns about whether the money reaches the workers. We asked a Walmart customer his thoughts on this issue. I'm a great tipper when I receive great service, but if I'm carrying out my food, why should I be required to tip? I think that's pretty annoying. And again, I don't mind tipping if I know for a fact that the tips are going directly to the workers, but when you are ordering food to carry out, you're not sure if the restaurant is actually going to give those tips to those workers. So that's kind of my concern there, and that's why I find it annoying. Companies like Amazon have been caught keeping tips meant for their workers. And other companies like Walmart would ask for tips on self-checkout screens. So some people are starting to avoid tipping altogether. Yeah, usually if their customer service is like, like through the roof, you know, I'll, just, I'll, I'll tip, tip them if they go out of the way. But besides that, just ignore it. Despite this, tipping is still expected in many places and Americans are some of the best tippers in the world. According to a Forbes article, the pandemic made people tip more to help struggling workers. But now with the rise of digital tipping prompts, some say it's become uncomfortable for customers and making them feel pressured to leave a tip. Others also point to questions of labor laws and fair pay surrounding tipping culture. Stephanie Sikal, NTD News, Los Angeles. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews@ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.